The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Okay, Anne McElvoy, executive editor of The Economist. First things first, do we know when there is going to be an election to be the new Tory party leader and when it is then that Boris Johnson will actually be leaving 10 Downing Street? Well, the two slightly separate things, uh, oddly enough, I mean, in the sense that the 1922 committee, which is that all-powerful committee of backbench and which actually runs the show when it comes to electing a new Conservative leader, intends to meet uh, next week, early next week, and basically figure out whether it wants to sort of stick with the rules which exist, and the, those rules will probably not change a lot about how you get to be leader. You've got to first go through this kind of donkey derby of MPs, and then you get down to a couple of candidates, and then the party vote on it. But it is possible, because Boris Johnson said he wants to stay and have this long goodbye, that there will be a conflict between that aim of his and the aim of the party to frankly get this uh, show on the road, because a very long leadership contest is indecisive, it's confusing, it doesn't leave a great impression with the electorate. So it's great fun for pundits like me, it's great fun for conservatives who like backing their horse and switching halfway through, but it's perhaps not politically very effective. Okay, so then, and as soon as the new leader is elected, then automatically that person will be proposed in the House of Commons, uh, be elected, and will go to the Queen to be made Prime Minister. Yes, yeah, as soon as they, obviously they have to then go to the membership, and there is obviously potential for that to upset the apple cart, but sometimes the minority candidate, if you like, can come through that race. Um, and that is a danger for the Conservative Party. We've seen the country very split, not only on Brexit, but on other aspects of economic policy. And I think there will be a tendency, if you like, to put up one candidate perhaps from the right of the party on some things and another candidate from the left on others. It's not absolutely clear that it will be purely on Brexit, I think you you want most likely to get a Leave and a Remain candidate. But there are a lot of people, particularly the next generation, who really want to move on from that and would like to see that sort of lay to rest and start debating other things. So these next few weeks will be crucial, and of course they'll be campaigning like crazy and trying to knock each other out of the race. Uh, Philip Blond is with us as well, former advisor to David Cameron, director of Race Publica, because Philip, that issue of Brexit is of enormous interest here in Ireland because as Michal Martin, our Taoiseach, said yesterday, relationships with Britain had been damaged by the uh, behaviour of Boris Johnson in office. And there are hopes that maybe a change at 10 Downing Street will bring a different attitude and approach towards the Northern Ireland Protocol and relationships between the UK and the European Union. What do you think should we be looking forward to in that regard? Well, I think Anne's right. There's a great wish to get beyond Brexit, but unfortunately Brexit remains defining. It's it's very hard to see how a Conservative government can continue allowing there to be a border uh, within the country between the mainland and Northern Ireland. I I think that the majority of the parliamentary party won't wear it, and therefore it will become a subject in the in the election and and commitments will be made. I also think that though the Brexit remain divide uh, might be fading, it's really still very present because the Conservative Party now has an unprecedented 
majority in the sense of it's now a working class party and arguably the Conservatives have never really recognised that in terms of policy and approach. There's still many of the candidates are still doing Thatcherism, goodness knows, version 300, which will not get them votes in, in the Red Wall. So, so Brexit will remain um, a defining feature of British politics insofar as it represents uh, the divide, uh, the new divide where the left has become the middle class party and the right has become the working class party. Uh, and that's a very hard coalition to cater to and to deliver on. So, so it's salient for the next election, I'm afraid. But Philip, go back to that point you were making about the border down the Irish Sea, which is one of the consequences of the protocol. Because that was something that was clearly explained at the time it was introduced. And it was something that the British government agreed with the European Union and it was presented to the British people by Boris Johnson as part of his oven-ready deal to get Brexit done. So how could a successor to Boris Johnson actually legitimise reneging on an international agreement freely entered into? Because I think that what it is in practice is very different from what it is in theory. And, you know, the Good Friday Agreement isn't just threatened from the side of the Republicans. It's also threatened from the side of, of the Unionists. And I think the, uh, this notion of essentially a different country within a country is, is equally polarizing within the, in the Unionist community. So the fears about it threatening the Good Friday agreements are real. And so, so there is a, a, how can I put it, a non-bloody-minded uh, uh, approach here that says, actually, you know what, this is, actually, this is dangerous for the Good Friday Agreement. So I think there is an aspect of that. And I also think that many of the rules and regulations or the non-tariff barriers are much, much higher than, than many uh, Conservative MPs at least thought. And they're uniquely damaging uh, for British businesses in a way that wasn't recognised. Now, you can argue they were warned, and I would agree with you, but nonetheless, that, that's the, the current reality. You can also argue that the, uh, the stats show that Northern Ireland businesses have been doing very well out of their ability to continue the unfettered access uh, to the European Union. And Anne McElvoy, there's also the argument as to how can Britain expect to go and do new trade deals around the world if it is seen to renege on one of the key exit agreements with the European Union? I don't think that is quite right. I think that if you're going to do a trade deal with Australia, let alone you know, the big enchilada, which I think they'll have great difficulty uh, doing whoever's in the White House with the US, and, and the smaller ones that have come along with Japan and, and, and others, their situation is not comparable uh, to the situation of the, the mainland, Northern Ireland, and the problems you've just been uh, dis- uh, discussing with Philip. They, they just want to know, well, what do you get from this trade deal and how is it going to work? So, no, I, don't, I think that's a debating point. I don't think it's true. But where I think the problem is that if the Conservatives are going to continue in this sort of global quest, free trade, etc. They do need to sort out trading relations with their nearest neighbour. And the, the way that I see through it is not for them to renege 
uh, on that quite complicated, but it was the only way through this problem about the border down the Irish Sea on the sort of virtual border. But it is to come back to the table and to hammer out how that's going to work. It's going to be a network of exceptions, but that wouldn't be the first time that trade policy uh, has had uh, exceptions attached to it in order to make something work. I mean, I lived in the old East Germany. You know, it wasn't even recognised as a country by West Germany, but it did have a trade agreement. So I think you do have to be a bit pragmatic here. If you only look to the theory, you will not find an answer. And I would guess that this will be what will be put forward as the candidates will have to come up with something to say. And that seems to be the landing zone of that argument. Then, of course, you just have to get get back to business with the EU and back to the negotiating table. And who would you regard as the main candidates to take over from Boris Johnson? Well, I think it's way too early for that, I have to say. <laughs> I think we've really? Seen sorry, really I, sorry, in most cases, yeah, when, you, when you have a leader step down, there's always <laughs> obvious candidates to take over. Yes, there's lots. <laughs> I would say it's, uh, certainly it would have been Rishi Sunak, but I think he's on the back foot uh, after the sort of complexity of his own family non-dom status and his wife's tax position. I think Sajid Javid did a fantastic speech in the Commons and is definitely, when he came out against Boris Johnson a couple of days ago, health secretary, former chancellor. He is probably in a stronger position than he was. And Liz Truss uh, as the candidate, if you like, of uh, of the more, what was it, folk were saying, uh, Thatcherism 3.0 or 300.0, was, uh, is definitely going to be in there too. At the moment, the members like Penny Morton, she's one of them. She's very easygoing. She has good natural relationship with them. Does she have the gravitas to really get through a campaign and come up with the answers to some of the, the very testing questions you're asking? No, I don't think she does. But that's the reason I say it's, uh, you know, it is a bit early to tell. You need to, some people to fall out of the race for others to make the pacts and the alliances and the exclusions in terms of their deals that they would need to, to be able to come through it. I think we're way off that point. Well, in the last hour, Rishi Sunak has declared that he wants the leadership. Philip Blond, are there others that you think we should be taking into consideration? Or are those, there are those who should be ruled out immediately? What about, for example, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel? Well, look, I think, I, I think the following rules are true. I, I think the winner will come from the right of the party. I think that the membership and the parliamentary party... Uh, are significantly not older in the in the sense of age, but in the sense of they're from an earlier ideological era. They neither the parliamentary party nor the broader membership at large have any real grasp of the new electorate. So the the, the you know the Cilia and Charybdis that the, the new leader has to has to negotiate is they've got to be right-wing and conventional enough for the uh, the electorate, if you will. They're two electorates, first MPs, then party members. But they've got to be aware enough that kind of Thatcherism never delivered for the poor in the North, and they're not likely to vote for, uh, you know, Thatcherism again. So the majority will evaporate. So I think that also, I, I mean, I, I think Anne's basically right. It's too early to tell. But I think all of the leading players are compromised and are unconvincing. And I, I think many of them, I don't see, see them necessarily beating uh, Labour at all. So I think that 
the time's right, really, for for somebody sort of to come up from sort of the outside. I think Brava Masuela is is a strong candidate, uh, a strong outside chance. Really? Uh, I think, really, I do, because I think she... I think she grasps um, the needs of the new electorate far better than anyone else currently on offer, and she's right-wing enough for for kind of for the party to actually vote for. And I think it may well be somebody with that like that who's not compromised by essentially not being quite mediocre okay. with, in terms of delivery and policy, which many of the front runners are. Thank you very much, Philip Blond uh, from Ray Republica and Anne McElvoy, Executive Editor of The Economist. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here.